with me in your Bibles to John chapter 2. We'll be continuing in our series of the Gospel of John, looking at the wedding in Cana of Galilee this morning. I was thinking Michael should come up and continue on with that sermon. That was, you were ready to go. A little boy and girl, brother and sister, were singing their favorite Christmas carol in church the Sunday a week before Christmas, like today. And the boy concluded Silent Night with the words, Sleep in heavenly beans. And his little sister looked at him and said, Silly, it's not beans, it's peas. It's peas. What gives you joy at Christmas time? Is it the pastor giving a corny Christmas joke that bombs? Is it the music that we sing? The Christmas carols? Is it the Christmas banquet either on Christmas Eve or on Christmas Day where you eat turkey, hopefully, or mashed potatoes and gravy and stuffing and chocolate cream pie? Or is it the scotch shortbread cookies oh, that I've eaten every year since I've been about probably three years old? Is it the presence under the tree? Or is it your family being together and being in, in from out of town? Or what is your reaction when some of these things are missing? Some of these traditions don't happen and are missing on Christmas Day. C.S. Lewis says this about Christmas and about Easter. He says there is a stage in a child's life in which it cannot separate the religious from the merely festal character of Christmas or Easter. I have been told of a very small and very devout boy who was heard murmuring to himself, on Easter morning, a poem of his own composition which, which began with chocolate eggs and Jesus risen. It could have been hot chocolate and Jesus born. This seems to me for his age both admirable poetry and admirable piety. But of course, the time will soon come when such a child can no longer effortlessly and spontaneously enjoy that unity, he will become able to distinguish the spiritual from the ritual and the festal aspect of Easter. Chocolate Easter eggs will no longer seem sacramental. And once he is distinguished, he must put one or the other first. If he puts the spiritual first, he can still taste something of the Easter in the chocolate eggs. If he puts the eggs first, 
they will soon be no more than any other sweet meat. They will have taken on independent and therefore a soon withering life. You know, this quote reminds me of the extreme contrast between the fleeting joys of this world and the lasting joy of God's kingdom. Romans 14, 17 says this, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy. And when we truly understand what the incarnation is all about, when we truly understand that our righteousness comes from Christ and Christ alone, then we will have peace and we can have joy. Are you a person that has joy in their life no matter what the season? One writer states this, The Bible tells us that one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. Psalm 32.11 declares, Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. In Psalm 16 we read, You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Jesus declared, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. According to these verses, the life of the Christian is to be characterized by joy, not a superficial, raucous joy which the world is capable of, but a divine, desirable joy that is characterized by the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And where do we find that joy? We can see it in this chapter, this morning. Look at John chapter 2, verse 1. This is the word of God. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. 
and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Why was Jesus invited to this wedding? You know, he may be invited because his disciple Nathan was from Cana. That was his hometown. It may have been because his mother Mary was working at this wedding. But whatever reason there was, Jesus was welcome at this celebration. And I think this is an important point when we look into the life of Christ. There, this is the first of many occasions where we see that Jesus was always welcome at a place where people were having a good time. Why is that? I believe it's because Jesus wasn't self-righteous. He didn't look down his nose at other people, thinking that he was better than them. He wasn't a killjoy or a snob. I remember years ago, I went to a Christmas party that... Um, that was for teachers, and Denise was there. And This was years ago in Florida when Denise was a public school teacher there. And I was having a great time laughing and joking around with her friends. And so a friend of Denise came over to her and pointed across the room at me and said, what does your husband do for a living? And she told her, he's a pastor. And the lady said right away, well, I want to go to your church. Now, why do you think she said that? She saw a, quote, religious leader having a good time with her non-Christian friends, and that intrigued her. That intrigued her. Charles Spurgeon said this, Sepulchre tones may fit a man to be an undertaker, but Lazarus is not called out of the grave by hollow moans. I commend cheerfulness to all who would win souls. So Jesus is at this wedding, and the wine runs out. Now you would think, that's not a big deal. You know, especially in our day. You just run out to the nearest 7-Eleven and get some more wine, right? But in those days, to run out of wine was a problem that could not be quickly fixed, and plus it would be a great embarrassment to the host. What is more is when you look into the Scriptures, you see that wine was a symbol of joy. In fact, one commentator said this, that the rabbi said that without wine, there is no joy. So to run out of wine at a wedding was equivalent to saying there is no joy at this occasion. What an embarrassment for the family. Maybe what an embarrassment for the wedding planner. So Mary, aware of this problem, runs to Jesus. Now, she could have reacted differently, couldn't she have? She, she could have um, worried about the lack of wine and run to the person who was supposed to supply it and said, what were you thinking? You didn't get enough wine. Or she could have worried about what the Canisonians thought of her in her wedding coordinating abilities. Or she could have just worried and been anxious because she didn't know how to get more wine. 
But she didn't do any of those things, did she? I remember years ago going to a wedding celebration. It was my sisters, Amy and David. And Amy and David were still getting pictures taken. We were at the wedding reception waiting for them, sitting there at the table. And I kept, you know, we were talking and chatting, waiting, waiting, you know, to eat, (laughs) starving. And as we were talking, I kept looking over at the cake, and I, I would occasionally say, did you see that cake move? And everybody said, nah, it's not moving. And I'd say, okay, we talk along. And then I'd look over again, did you see that cake move? Nope. So then, finally, I decided, I'm going to get up, and right as I'm getting up, boom, the whole cake goes over. Three-tiered cake on the floor, all over the place. Disaster in the making, right? What a temptation to get upset, right? To say, I paid $500, not me, my dad, I paid $500 for that cake, and it's on the floor. What are you going to do about it? Right? That didn't happen. Um, there was another cake in the back for the next wedding. looked just like my sister's. They brought it out, cleaned it up. No problem. Disaster solved. But what do you do when things don't go as planned? Do you freak out? Do you blame others? Do you shut down with fear and anxiety? What's the solution? Well, look at what Mary did. What did she do? She ran immediately to Jesus. And and notice this. Her complete trust in him when she says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Look at verse 4. It says, And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Now some think that he's rebuking Mary here because she's asking for more wine and that possibly there were people that were getting drunk. Now that's that's nowhere in the text, so, you know, that's, that's, that's not a good interpretation. Mary's motive probably for bringing up this problem was out of concern for the people throwing this wedding, but we don't know. It could have also been a, a Jewish mother's ambition for her son to go public with, her, with his ministry. Jesus calling his, his mother woman was not a rebuke. It sounds very strong in the English, but woman was a title of respect in the Jewish culture. The point Jesus was making is that he was not ready to do anything public because his hour of crucifixion was years away. One writer says this, Jesus, of course, knew that his times were in the hands of his Father in heaven, He would not be manipulated. And yet, this is a wonderful part of his story. He had no desire to allow the lack of joy or embarrassment either. So he moves quietly. He didn't do this publicly. 
Only Mary, the servants, and the disciples knew what he was doing. So Jesus tells the servants to go fill the water pots, and they fill them to the brim. He then tells them to draw some of this and take it to the head waiter. And how does the head waiter react to this? He's perplexed, and he needs to find out an answer to his question. So he runs immediately to the groom, um, who I'm sure was rather busy at the time, and he says this, Every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then that which is poor, you have kept the good wine until now. So why did he make that comment? His comment reveals that the wine that Jesus made was a very fine wine. And this wine tasted much better and appeared older in age and had fermented longer. Now some have trouble here because the amount of wine that was made. It was between 100 and 150 gallons. And some commentators argue that that is so much wine that um, for any party it was too much and therefore it must have been grape juice. But if this was grape juice, then the head waiter's comment would be nonsensical. The head waiter said the common practice was to serve the good wine first. Why? Because when people drank the good wine first, their taste buds would be deadened so not to be able to taste or distinguish bad wine after that. To say that this wine was not fermented is to make the head waiter's statement ridiculous. More importantly, to say that it was grape juice detracts from the glory of God. The head waiter's statement gives glory to God because he implied that Jesus turned water not only into grape juice, which would be a miracle, but into a fine wine. The wine gives an appearance of age which made the miracle even more glorious and wonderful. Another support for this being fermented wine um, is in a statement by one writer who says this, verse 213 says the Passover was at hand. And just before the spring Passover, the wine would naturally be fermented. The grape harvest would have been collected over six months earlier in September. Thus, the wine had ample time to ferment. The wine Jesus made must have tasted so much better as to have been fermenting for years. Now, the final argument that some would make that this was grape juice is that they would say this. If Jesus would have made 150 gallons of wine, it would have encouraged drunkenness. But that's looking at the gift from God in the wrong way. James 1.17 says this, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like a shifting shadow. Every gift that we have in life, food, wine, pleasure, children, material things, 
are all a gift from God given for us to enjoy. So why do some question the potential for abuse when Jesus makes wine for a wedding and not the potential for abuse when Jesus makes food for 5,000 people? Think about that. Was there a potential for gluttony on that day? And who is responsible for the use of the gift anyway? Is it the gift giver or the one who abuses the gift? We need to realize that it's not the gifts of God that God gives us that are sinful, but it's the wickedness of men's heart. And we have a tendency to blame things and people for our sins instead of taking responsibility for them ourselves. This eventually leads to blaming God, the gift giver, like Adam did, when he said, it's the woman that you gave me that caused me to sin. You see, he blamed the gift, the woman, and he also blamed the gift giver. You see, remember, every wonderful gift that we are given can be abused. Food can become gluttony. Wine can be a temptation for drunkenness. Sex can be a temptation for fornication, adultery. Even our children, who are a blessing from God, can be a temptation for pride or idolatry. Have you ever wondered why the first miracle in the Bible for Jesus was making water into wine at a wedding feast. Well, verse 11 says that he did it to manifest his glory. He did it to show his disciples a little bit more of his deity. And as a result of this, the disciples grew in faith. Now, there, there's something else in this text that if you don't look at it closely, you can miss it. Notice that Jesus uses these jars that were used for Jewish purification. 150 gallons of water that were used for ceremonial washing. Mark 7, 1 through 3 says this about those jars and about purification. It says, Now when the Pharisees gathered together with, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they washed their hands, holding to the tradition of elders. And when they'd come from the marketplace... They did not eat unless they washed. Do you see what, it, what had happened to Judaism? It had degenerated into a legalistic system of rules and traditions. And these men were mechanically going through the motions of religion without any joy and that's what these empty jars represent religion without christ religion without joy 
But Jesus fills these jars to the brim with wine, which represents joy. Joy that only comes in our relationship with Christ. Joy that only comes from His supply of the Holy Spirit. John 3.34 says this, He gives the Spirit without measure. In John 4.14, Jesus said this about the Spirit, Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Jesus is not only generous when he supplies 150 gallons of wine, but how much more is his generosity seen in his provision of joy through the abundant giving of the Holy Spirit? Years ago, I took a class in uh, seminary from Steve Brown. He was my homiletics professor. He's, he's a pretty famous pastor. He's on the radio. And I remember him telling a story that contrasts self-righteous joylessness and the joy of God's kingdom. He said that one time he went to a Bible study in his church, um, and there was a ladies' Bible study, and afterwards they went out to lunch, and he went with them. And the waitress came up, and was taking the order of the group, and they went up, the lady went up to the head woman of the Bible study and asked her, would you like a cocktail with your lunch? Well, the response from the leader, she said in a loud, condescending tone, I'm a Christian, and I don't drink. Well, you could tell it offended the waitress. I mean, her head went down, um, and then she kind of sheepishly took the order of the other ladies. And then she got around to Steve Brown. And if you know Steve Brown, he, he gave her the most loving smile. And he looked at her and he said, I'm a Christian and I'll have a bud. Did that. And he told us in class that day when he was telling this story, he said, at about that time, I was pretty much a teetotaler. So the issue wasn't for him drinking or not drinking. Just as the story in John 2 is not about wine or grape juice. Steve made this comment out of love for the waitress. You see, he knew that his righteousness only comes from Christ. Unlike this woman leader who self-righteously looked down her nose at this young woman. The story along with the wedding of Cana points to the joy of God's kingdom compared to the drudgery and joylessness of self-righteous living. Remember what I read at the start of this. Romans 14, 17 says this, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy. 
In closing, there's one final point of this story. This wedding at Cana points to a final wedding that we will have in the kingdom of God. And this is talked about in Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 9. And it says this, And the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, He will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all the nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. And He will remove the reproach of His people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken, and it, and it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God, for whom we have waited that He might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. Notice that last verse. It says, let us be glad in what? His salvation. You know, it's not about us. It's not about the bride in this. It's about the groom. It's about His salvation. It's about His forgiveness. It's about His righteousness. It's about His joy that we can have. Filled with joy. Or is it one that has degenerated into a legalistic system of rules? One writer says this, apart from Him who is the source of life, who is Himself life, religion is cold and lifeless. Apart from the joy that He brings, religion is joyless and hardens personalities. Do you have religion? It'll profit you nothing. Or do you have Christ? He alone can quench the hunger and thirst of your heart. He alone can put a song in your mouth that not even the angels can sing. He alone can give you true and everlasting joy. And you know, when you have Christ, you have everything. That's why in Psalm 23 it says this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not, what? Want. Let's pray together. Joy. We thank you that you give the Spirit without measure. Help us not to follow after any idols whose promises fail, especially during this time of year. But help us to run hard after you all the days of our life. 
For we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.